Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. Ahmed ibn Saloon governed Egypt on behalf of the Abbasid dynasty for 16 years, between the years 868 to 884 of the Christian era. An aggressive and innovative actor, he pursued an ambitious political agenda, including the introduction of dynastic rule over Egypt that put him at odds with his imperial masters. Throughout his rule, however, he maintained close ties to the Abbasid house, and at no point did he assert outright independence, or so argues our guest today, Matthew Gordon. Matthew Gordon is Philip R. Shriver Professor of History at Miami University in Ohio, where he teaches Middle East and Islamic history. His previous books include The Breaking of a Thousand Swords, A History of the Turkish Military of Samarra, and a series of textbooks including The Rise of Islam, and understanding Islam. He co-edited the translation of the works of Al-Yaqubi, which appeared in 2018 from Brill, and he is a co-editor with Antoine Barou of the University of Maryland and Alison Vaca of the University of Tennessee of the online journal Al-Usur al-Wusta. He is also a past president of Middle East Medievalists. I interviewed him about his new biography of Ahmed ibn Saloon, which is out in 2021 from Warden World Academic Press. Matthew Gordon, welcome to the New Books Network. It's our tradition here to uh, ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, their academic history, and what led them uh, toward the project we're discussing. So uh, so how did you get interested in the, in the first place? This is always a... Uh, uh tricky question because it's a, you know, a question of where does one begin? I grew up in the Middle East in Beirut. So perhaps it was uh, already in my mind to to study the Middle East in some fashion or another. I then had opportunity to spend two years living in Marrakesh, Morocco, during which time I really became aware of the, the very complex texture of lived Islam. And it was at that point uh, that I thought, okay, let's apply to graduate school uh, and, and, and see how things turn out. I was accepted to the program at Columbia and entered the program, ended up working with Richard Bullitt, uh, so a preeminent historian, of course, and very well known for his work. And I started out studying Moroccan history, uh, but with always an eye to the urban landscape of of uh, of the Middle East, and uh, just perhaps because I was raised in cities, but I'm, I'm deeply interested in how cities operate and how urban populations interact with one another. For reasons I'm not quite sure of, I ended up going back in time and ended up thinking about the Abbasid Caliphate in, in some detail. And working with Dr. Bullitt, thought that I would first uh, do a dissertation on the religious uh, establishment of Baghdad. So this would have been a uh, work on the ulama of, of the Abbasid period, but from a social point of view, uh, not really thinking about them as jurists per se or looking at hadith and so on, uh, but thinking much more about them as a social collective and how, what were the dynamics. A lot of work even by that point. So we're in the you know mid-80s, uh, early 90s, uh, even by that point, uh, you know, a lot of work had been done on Baghdad. Uh, but what was clear or what came clear to me was that little work had been done on the city of Samarra, which, of course, replaced Baghdad as the imperial uh, capital for about a 60-year period in the ninth century. So I thought, okay, let's take a closer look at the city of Samarra. What came clear to me very quickly is that the dominant uh, sort of sociopolitical class uh, of or a dominant sociopolitical class of Samarra uh, was made up of, of of the Turkish military, Turkish and Central Asian uh, military. So that uh, sparked my interest. I began to read about that military, 
And at that point, uh, largely due to the scholarship of uh, David Ayalon, Patricia Crona, and Daniel Pipes, there was a, a body of scholarship around the phenomenon of the slave military, the Abbasid slave military. What I found puzzling, though, as I read those three books and, and, and read further on and then really began to delve into the Arabic sources, uh, primarily Tabari, but others as well, is that no real effort had been made to bring together a kind of history of the Turkish military uh, of Samarra. So that's uh, what took me to my first book, The Breaking of a Thousand Swords, in, which came out in 2001. What came clear to me is that some of the best information regarding that Turkish military had to do with Ahmed ibn Tulun and had to do with the Tulunid family in Egypt. So on completing the book, um, I, I thought, well, you know, what what direction do I want to head of, head off into now? Uh, and I thought that work on the Tulunids would, would be the way to go. So I've been working on Ahmed ibn Tulun now for well over a decade. And the book that we're talking about, uh, the, the One World Press book, uh, really is the fruit of uh, sort of on-again, off-again uh, scholarship and, and work over about a decade. So this is the, the result of, of you know, a number of years of effort and interest. And it's also, I should say, and sort of, I, I guess I'm anticipating a question of uh, that will come later. Uh, I'm anticipating working further on the Tulunids uh, now that this book is, is finished. So that's a rough picture of, of that trajectory. Thank you for that. You mentioned Patricia Crona, who was one of the founding editors of the series Makers yes. of the Muslim World, in which your book appears I know that there was some question about whether the series would continue after her unexpected passing, and it's really great to see that it's been revived with a new editorial team. Ibn Saloon is a fascinating person. I'm an Egyptian historian myself, and I really wanted to study the medieval era, but it turns out that I really don't like reading medieval Arabic poetry, which comprises a lot of the source material. Uh, but you're really speaking my language when you discuss your fascination with urban history, because the history of Cairo is, is one of my particular interests, and the mosque that Ibn Saloon built is one of my favorite Islamic monuments in the city. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to read this book and to talk to you about it. Uh, can we talk about what it takes to write the biography of a historical figure from this point in history. Uh, how do you begin to construct a reasonable profile when the sources may not give you uh, what it is that you necessarily want? Okay, so your question is, how does one write a biography of a medieval subject? I think the very first problem, of course, are all the lacunae. Uh, in our information, simply the, the the large gaps in the information that we have on hand. And we can talk more about some of the specific examples as, as we move along here. But the other issue, of course, is that in a, in a sense, we have the opposite problem for Ahmed ibn Tulun, which is that we've actually got a quite a good body of information, particularly regarding his tenure in office. In other words, that 16-year period where he is serving as governor of, uh, of uh, Abbasid Egypt. And what I'm referring to primarily here are two early biographies, one by Ibn Adaya, uh, a, a, uh, who was a uh, government official like his father. They both worked for the Tulunid administration. Um, and then a somewhat later biography, uh, the Sirat Ahmed ibn Tulun uh, by al-Balawi, uh, who we believe was a, a Twelver scholar who decided probably uh, that uh, through an act of patronage, someone asked him to, to write this biography, that he penned a roughly 300 to 325 page biography of Ahmed ibn Tulun. So Right there, we have a, a great deal of information. The great problem there, however, is, of course, that al-Balawi was not writing uh, his biography in the way that a modern historian might write a biography, in trying to strike a certain balance and trying to ask a lot of critical questions and so on. Really, what we have is, to my mind anyway, is 
a work that falls pretty solidly into the mirror for Prince's uh, literature. Mm-hmm. In other words, that he's trying to represent Ahmed ibn Taloon in a particular fashion. Um, and what I think is going on in this very long biography is an effort to represent Ahmed ibn Taloon as a, almost a model amir, a, a model governor. Yes, he brings out his warts. Yes, he brings out what one might think of as character flaws, uh, particularly, I think, a penchant for violence, uh, violence against his political opponents. But otherwise, I think that he's really shaping this work to represent Ahmed ibn Taloon for later generations and to say, okay, well, here we have this Amir, this governor, and I'm going to show you why he's a kind of model uh, for the position of governor. So that immediately uh, skews the information. And so back to our question then is, first of all, is we've got to face all the lacunae. Uh, all those uh, sort of gaps in our information. And then, perhaps ironically, on the other hand, is that we've also got to grapple with a lot of information that is presented to us, but with a very particular, uh, from a very particular perspective, well, or with a particular bias at work. One of the things that really struck me about the way you describe Ibn Taloon mm-hmm. is as a product of Abbasid history. When I read it, uh, it seemed so obvious, but I don't think I've ever seen him treated this way in the Egyptian historiography, where he's usually treated as an isolated figure, um, or he'll appear in broader studies of Arab-Islamic history as someone who took advantage of this period of fragmentation and disintegration in the Abbasid Empire. You, however, place him within the context of this particular moment in Abbasid history, which changes the narrative quite a bit. Can you describe for our listeners how this gives us additional insight into who he was and what he was trying to accomplish as governor of Egypt? Okay, sure. Again, I, you know, one relies on uh, modern scholarship to help frame questions, uh, both whether they are helpful questions that you want to follow or questions that seem not quite right. And we do have an extended uh, study of the Tulunids, uh, which focuses very much on Ahmed ibn Tulun, and that is Zaki Hassan's 1933 study, uh, the uh, Les Toulounides. Now uh, it's a work in French. Um, and it's very thorough. Uh, now, what is interesting is that he did not have al-Balawi in hand, but nevertheless uh, did uh, his homework uh, and really pursued his, his study. But what I found and I find in other scholarship uh, as I was sort of assembling my material and gathering up uh, what information I could find is what was often missing was the Samaran context. In other words, to connect Ahmed ibn Tulun much more clearly to the wider politics, the wider dynamics, the wider situation of the Abbasid Caliphate at a very critical point. And as you point out, uh, it was critical because this was the point at which the Caliphate really was coming apart at the seams, um, l- losing control over important provinces, uh, but also facing uh, very serious challenges within the very heartland, that is, within the very center of, of the empire. And there are really two events that we, or two developments that we want to point to. Uh, one is the rise of the Turkish and Central Asian military command. So this is a, a military elite that, for a number of reasons, rises to the fore within uh, Samarra itself and begins to exert a great deal of uh, pressure and and, uh, influence over the Abbasid court uh, to the point that the Turkish military command sees to the nomination and then the uh, removal of a series of caliphs, uh, beginning with Al-Mutawakkil and then uh, five of his uh, successors. So it's a very difficult and very violent uh, and very disruptive time for the Abbasid court itself. 
The second major development then was the explosion of what most historians refer to as the Zand Revolt Mm -hmm. in uh, southern Iraq. Together, these two events, um, and I should perhaps follow just to say that the Zand Revolt was a was a extended revolt uh, extending over a number of years in which the Abbasids really lose control over the the delta of the Tigris and Euphrates uh, they lose control over Basra a major uh, commercial center and its hinterlands and they suffer a number of military uh, humiliations at the hands of the Zand rebels so together the crisis within Samarra itself joined to the crisis of southern Iraq meant that the Abbasids and uh, its, uh, you know, its power circles were not able to uh, dictate politics and dictate uh, the course of events in major provinces. And uh, for purposes of this conversation, of course, is that we're most interested in Egypt and what is happening in Egypt. And so the way I, I frame this is that uh, we, we, we might think of Ahmed ibn Talun as a very ambitious actor who is taking uh, advantage of opportunity. And it's an opportunity presented within an imperial context of an empire that is falling apart, not able to control developments in uh, the provinces. And so across the board, we see a number of different actors who are seizing the day, who are taking advantage of opportunities presented to them by what was, in effect, a political vacuum. And I would uh, describe Ahmed ibn Tulun uh, in those terms, that here is a very ambitious individual who takes office at a point where the empire cannot really dictate to him how he should conduct himself in office, uh, and he proceeds from there. So the first chapter of the book um, discusses uh, his first decade in office. Uh, he arrives in Egypt in 868 of the Christian calendar. And you discuss what, what relatively little we know about his family and his education and his background. Um, mm-hmm. But there are, there are two questions that you, you sort of highlight, one of which involves uh, his parents' origins as unslaved or unfree persons. And another involves, as you mentioned several times, the the family's Turkish origins. And as a point of curiosity, I, I've always been curious what it meant that somebody spoke Turkish in the ninth century. What what language mm-hmm. would that be? Um, and I asked this question because several years ago, when I was working at a, at a major university, we got a copy of a encyclopedia of Turkish civilization that had been put out by a press in the Republic of Turkey, who identified him as Ahmet Tulunolu, which is what he would be in modern Turkish. And of course, my immediate question was, would he have recognized that name if someone called him that on the street? Um, And, you know, what what, what did it mean that that, that somebody was a Turkish speaker in the ninth century? Yeah, no, these are great questions. Um, Again, we don't know nearly as much as we'd like, certainly as much as I would like, about Ahmet ibn Tulun's family, uh, his, uh, you know, his father as well as his mother. What we do know is that Tulun was gifted by a Abbasid governor, belonged to the Samanid family, uh, gifted to Al Ma'mun, who was the Abbasid caliph at the turn of the ninth century, and and a very interesting and and often uh, for for many historians a very controversial. Uh, caliph. And so the indications are that uh, Tulun was one of a number of young Turkish males, uh, or I might say Turkic males, who is either purchased or captured or gifted to the Abbasid house and enrolled or recruited into a new style military formation that historians uh, commonly referred to as the Abbasid slave military. So that Tulun was of enslaved background uh, seems clear, at least if we accept these uh, these very brief uh, indications. His mother is named Qasim. Now Qasim is a, uh, and I've had students who come up to me after I lecture on the Tulunid family, uh, very worried, and uh, those students who know Arabic, very worried that I'd gotten something wrong uh-huh. because Qasim, of course, is a, in the modern Arabic world, 
is a male name. You would never name a, a daughter a Qasim. Uh, but that is what the sources tell us uh, was her name. It probably just followed a pattern whereby slaves were uh, given uh, names for various reasons and that young female slaves were probably given male names as a, as a kind of play, uh, uh, as a way to just uh, be playful in the naming. But she is referred to as a uh, concubine and as belonging to Tulun. Uh, she give, she she bears him four children, Ahmed and then his brother Musa, uh, and then two uh, sisters, uh, about whom we know almost nothing. We have names of both women, uh, but we know nothing else about them. So Qasim, it would appear, would have been a concubine, uh, would have also then been enslaved. Now, what did this mean for the family? Well, there's a lot that we can't uh, say about that topic. One question that I do bring up in the book is what was Tulun's standing, his legal standing, uh, at the time uh, that he becomes a father? And what I point out is that according to Islamic law, or at least a prominent a line of opinion in Islamic law, is that slaves were not to own property. Uh, so that suggests that it would have been ruled out that he could own a concubine as a slave. So it suggests that Taluna became a freedman. In other words, he was manumitted at some point in his uh, career. But we don't know much more about him, uh, and we know very little else about Qasim. But I think there is the abiding question that she is actually not identified as being Turkic. Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, slave women, enslaved women, were brought in from a number of regions outside the boundaries of the Arab Islamic Empire. We have women brought in from the Byzantine territories. We have them brought in from Turkic uh, territories, from Armenia, from Ethiopia, from North Africa. So the question then is, uh, what was Qasim's background? And therefore, what kind of cultural knowledge did she bring? What kind of cultural baggage did she bring to her motherhood? Uh, and so what songs did she, you know, in what language did she sing to her children and so on? So, you know, there are these questions that surround uh, the the parents and therefore I think surround Ahmed ibn Tulun's uh, uh, childhood. But again, this is a case of where we just don't have sufficient amount of information to go a whole lot further. Now, on the question of uh, the father, in any case, uh, as being a Turk, and then Ahmed ibn Tulun himself is identified as a Turk in the Arabic sources. And at several points in the biography of Balawi, uh, is said to have actually spoken Turkish with his fellow uh, officers. Um, so uh, to your question, um, what Turkish would he have spoken? I don't know. Uh, to, to be frank with you. And it's actually a very good question and one that I need to pursue. But what I am also interested in is the reception in Middle Eastern urban society to the arrival of these young Turks. Mm -hmm. uh, because there is a lot of, uh, there are many indications in Arabic sources as well in, as, well as non-Arabic sources that the Turks were received and were viewed within Middle Eastern urban society very much as an other. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, you know, to use a very outdated term at this point, I think, as a kind of barbarian, mm -hmm. perhaps how Roman society might have viewed those speaking Germanic languages, or as Chinese urban uh, uh, dwellers might have viewed uh, peoples from the steppe. And so, the reception to the Turks within Baghdad and Samarra and Damascus and other Middle Eastern cities, I think would have been shot through with a real ambivalence. On the one hand, one welcomed their service, one welcomed their the way in which they carried out their duties within the military and so on, um, that they were willing to serve the empire. But on the other hand, was a long-standing history of viewing them as effectively as a, as a lesser people mm -hmm. um, and as bringing in patterns of behavior and, and language and so on that 
were perhaps seen as not appropriate to uh, a, a Middle Eastern urban environment. So this is a set of questions that I'm also uh, thinking about as I continue to study uh, and try to situate Ahmed ibn Tulun and then the Tulunid household uh, in, in as rich a context as I can. One of the ways that the Turkish military seems to have been able to integrate themselves was through religious means. As you point out in the book, you know, uh, Ibn Tulun's biographers make a lot of his commitment to the faith, to Islam, um, and how that informed his conduct as, as a ruler. So why is this something that they they wanted to emphasize and, and what can we make of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, if we turn again to Al-Balawi, um, and, uh, you know, again, we have in the Sirat Ahmed ibn Tulun, we have a very rich text with a lot of uh, information in it, uh, obviously about Ahmed ibn Tulun's career, but a lot of uh, references to the kind of socio-religious context in which he's operating. And Al-Balawi insists over and over again on not simply that Ahmed ibn Tulun was well-educated as a Muslim and spent time both in Samarra, but particularly on the uh, Byzantine frontier, being educated in Islam. So, there, the, he, so we insist on that, that Ahmed ibn Tulun was a devout Muslim with, with a solid Muslim education. But also he insists on the centrality of faith, of piety, of what we might call just-mindedness to Ahmed ibn Tulun's career and to his approach to office. In other words, that uh, faith and piety and, and religiosity, that these were drivers uh, to Ahmed ibn Tulun's approach to office. Um, now, why is that? Again, I think that we've got to see the sirah, uh, that is the biography of, of uh, al-Balawi, uh, and, and to some extent also the biography of Ibn Adaya, this earlier work, as being uh, composed along the lines of a mirror for princes. And in other words, that there is a, an, an attempt here uh, to use Ahmed ibn Tulun to kind of model and, and comment on and think about the conduct of those holding political office. And so central to that, and I don't think it's any great surprise given that these works are being uh, produced by Muslim scholars, Mm -hmm. central to that representation of Ahmed ibn Tulun then is religion and is this turn to religion. And the need then for those who occupy political office in uh, the Arab Islamic Empire to be guided by uh, a commitment to again faith, to piety, to uh, ideas of justice and um, generosity, and so on. So I, I this is not to deny that Ahmed ibn Tulun uh, was a devout Muslim. Um, the mosque is there; it stands as a monument to someone who is keenly aware of the central importance of religion to Islam, medieval Islamic uh, life. And I think that it would be too skeptical to say that Ahmed ibn Tulun is simply represented as a good Muslim. I, I, my sense is that the man probably was very serious about his religion and very serious about his, his commitments to faith and piety. But again, we can't ignore that some of what we're grappling with here, uh, or maybe a large question that we're grappling with, is this representation of Ahmed ibn Tulun. And, and therefore, I think religion uh, is inevitably going to be part of that, that description. The first half of the book, and, and the books in, in this particular series are, are relatively short, so the first two chapters, yeah. um, concern his tenure in office. He was the Abbasid governor uh, for 16 years from 868 to his death in 884. And one of the statements you made really kind of encapsulated his tenure. And that is, and I quote, he, meaning Ibn Tulun, arrived in Al-Fustat, the Arab Islamic center of Egypt, located at the southern end of the Nile Delta, 
precisely at the moment of the worst violence in Samarra and on the eve of the Zanj Rebellion. Each of the two developments would shape his tenure in complex fashion. So can we talk more about how what was going on back in the Abbasid heartland affected the way he ruled Egypt? I think it's absolutely critical to place him in that context. In other words, to join his career and the pursuit of a very ambitious political agenda, to join it to a, a, a rather precipitous decline or precipitous fall in Abbasid imperial authority. Um, on the one hand, so this is um, what I'm referring to then, is the violence at the heart of the Abbasid uh, state mm-hmm. in Samarra. Uh, and then I would also join it to the Zend rebellion, and that, that those two together really, in a sense, distracted the empire and allowed for uh, ambitious actors uh, across the empire then to act on uh, their ambitions. So I think this is a good way to think about Ahmed ibn Saloon. So what he sets out with then is a very ambitious agenda. Now, one question that I do bring up in the book is at what point does he recognize that he has an opportunity mm-hmm. at hand? And I'm not sure we can really pin this down. I mean, we obviously can't hear from him and the biographies don't really uh, speak to that question directly. In other words, that we don't get any direct statements that, you know, from this point forward, Ahmed ibn Taloon now uh, pursued his agenda. But I think a critical turn was when he took control of the fiscal administration in, in, uh, in Egypt, mm-hmm. which, you know, we could date to about three or four years into his, his administration. And this involved confronting the very well-positioned and uh, equally ambitious uh, fiscal official, uh, Ibn al-Mudabbir uh, by name, uh, who had served al-Mutawakkil very well as a fiscal official, had been appointed to uh, Syria and Jordan, and then uh, following some controversy in his career, and it ends up in Egypt and what we understand from references in the Arabic sources, as well as some very negative references in uh, the Coptic uh, sources, is that Ibn al-Mudabbir pursued a rather harsh fiscal plan. In other words, imposing new taxes uh, and seen to the uh, sort of very thorough and exacting um, imposition of the existing tax administration and became deeply unpopular as a result. But he was, of course, the uh, he represented the empire, probably was well protected. So we've got a, a, a fiscal program in place when Ahmed ibn Taloun arrives in Egypt. And within two or three years, as I say, he's able to effect control over those fiscal offices, which involves a um, confrontation with Ibn al-Mudabbir and probably his, you know, his top representatives in the fiscal administration. And it's interesting to see how both Ibn Adaya and al-Balawi really almost seem to enjoy telling the story of this confrontation between the two men. The outcome, in any case, is that Ahmed ibn Taloun takes over the fiscal administration at a point at which not only is a, a I, I think, a heightened level of revenue flowing into the treasuries of Al-Fustat, but that the necessary steps had been taken by Ibn Taloun's predecessors, and then we also see Ahmed ibn Taloun doing the same, of clamping down on any remaining opposition within the rural districts of Egypt. And I think this is an important point that we also want to bring out, is to connect a what I have referred to in a forthcoming article as a campaign of pacification mm-hmm. that is carried out by Ahmed ibn Taloun's predecessors, that is the governors before him, also I think by Ibn al-Mudabbir, and then by Ahmed ibn Taloun himself once he takes over to crack down on what remains of uh, fiscal and political opposition, 
which means then that as a result of Ibn Mudabbir's fiscal program, joined to this kind of political crackdown, that there was a heightened revenue flow into Al-Fustat. And so Ahmed ibn Talun, I think, sets his sights on taking the fiscal, uh, taking over the fiscal administration of Egypt, recognizing that there were very serious resources uh, in play, and that if he could uh, lay control of those fiscal resources, he could then pursue uh, what apparently was an emerging political agenda. And that's exactly what he does from that point forward. And uh, we do read about, in Balawi in particular, but other sources as well, of the very considerable wealth of the Tulunid treasuries and the very considerable wealth that Ahmed ibn Tulun leaves to his successor, Khumarawe, uh, his son, uh, at, the, at the close of his 16-year tenure. So we've got, uh, in other words, a context of crisis within the empire that allows local political actors to seize the day. And in the case of Ahmad ibn Tulun, seizing the day meant, uh, I, I believe, seizing control of uh, the fiscal administration of Egypt and then moving forward from, from that point. You cover uh, a bit of the fiscal administration and, and uh, the, the conflict with, with Al-Mudabur in uh, the third chapter. Yeah. You also talk about the fact that when he arrived in Egypt, um, things weren't going well in the provinces. There, there was a lot of discontent with the um, yeah. previous governor of Egypt. And one of the things that, as you've already uh, mentioned, is, is that he had to restore order throughout the country in order to get the revenue flowing again. Uh, how was he able to accomplish that? I, you know, this is where I think it's really important to try to place uh, Ahmed ibn Tulun in a in a in a, a broader context. What I find uh, is that often he's treated uh, as as somehow representing a break from the policies and the conduct of those men who came before him. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think that that's really the way one wants to go. I think it's more helpful to think about Ahmed ibn Tulun as representing an effort on the part of the Abbasid Empire, but very specifically, and this is an argument that that I suggest in the book, but that I'm trying to develop in in another forthcoming article, which is to recognize that Egypt probably was a very specific interest for the Samaritan military command. We know that a number of those men uh, had properties in in Egypt. These would have been uh, land holdings, effectively, uh, from which they grew wealthy. But that they were also specifically interested in bringing about a a political order to Egypt in order to enhance uh, the flow of fiscal resources. Uh, also, I think to tap into the the, the labor market of of Egypt, mm-hmm. but. What does this mean? This means that that efforts were already afoot under Ibn Tulun's success, uh, sorry, predecessors, in order to bring about uh, peace and order to Egypt. So when Ahmed Ibn Tulun arrives, his predecessor Yazid Ibn Abdullah, and and then the the military command in Egypt itself had already engaged in a number of confrontations with tax rebels uh, and other sources of opposition in Egypt. When Ahmed ibn Tulun arrives then, is that in effect, he completes that effort. In other words, he cracks down on what I take to be the last of the uh, sources of opposition in Egypt. And so what what I'm saying, in other words, is that we want to think about Ahmed ibn Tulun as a uh, bringing an effort to culmination, an effort at bringing about law and order in Egypt in order to enhance uh, both the, the flow of fiscal wealth, but also to enhance uh, that stability, to take advantage of that stability uh, in, in the empire, I'm sorry, in the province. Speaking of law and order, or I suppose this makes a nice segue into talking about the the House of Tolun itself. There were uh, a number of uh, struggles within the family. Um, you discuss 
what was going on with his brother Musa, as well as uh, the issues that occurred when he passed away in 884, and his son uh, Humaraue then uh, proceeds to succeed him. Can you talk a little more yeah. about that? Yeah, this I'm 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 really quite fascinated with, and um, uh, hope to 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 really pursue this further to think about uh, medieval households and to think about what does it mean to run a large and very unwieldy household, uh, which is by all indications exactly what uh, Ahmed ibn Tulun dealt with all the way through his career. And uh, there are three individuals uh, that uh, are of interest in this regard. There is his brother Musa, who apparently was a real headache for Ahmed ibn Tulun. Musa, uh, from an er- very early point, uh, insisted in, in, in public and presumably in private to his brother that he share, share in the power and also the resources of Egypt and that his brother Ahmed pushed back on that. And that led to a real severing of relations with, uh, between the two brothers. Uh, we then later, uh, within uh, five, six years, if I'm getting my dating right, uh, we have a revolt, uh, a very, um, ha- you know, a very clumsy and, and rather strange uh, revolt on the part of his eldest son, Al-Abbas, who up to that point, I think Ahmed ibn Tulun had thought of as being his successor. Uh, so Al-Abbas, at a point at which where Ahmed ibn Tulun is on campaign in Syria, Al-Abbas is encouraged by a circle of of followers, uh, both military men, but also a kind of group of, I don't, you know, they're described as poets and as close companions of Al-Abbas. So these would have been civilians. So a a circle of advisors uh, who uh, encourage him then to um, plunder the wealth of his father's treasury and then to march out of Egypt into North Africa. So it's, it's a strange event. Um, I, to call it a rebellion is perhaps uh, erroneous, um, but it is what we, we do term it. Ahmed ibn Taloon learns of this uh, so-called rebellion, hurries back to Egypt. But in the meantime, Al-Abbas uh, has behaved so badly in North Africa in trying to kind of impose his own authority in uh, Ifriqiya that he is uh, badly defeated by uh, an army of the Aglabids, uh, aided by some other forces in North Africa. And uh, so that when the Talunid forces uh, march out against Al-Abbas, they find that he is in fact in full retreat. And a small vanguard force then brings Al-Abbas back to Egypt, where he is uh, forced by his father to undergo a kind of public humiliation. What's interesting is that Ahmed ibn Tulun keeps his son around, and it's only Humarawe that ends up probably uh, seen to the murder of, of his brother, which we can take to be you know, internecine family politics at work. I mean, there's, there's something almost Shakespearean about this confrontation between the two brothers. And then finally, I think the event that really was a profound crisis for the Tulunid household and uh, brings up all kinds of interesting questions about blood ties versus clientage ties mm. within these complex households. And that is the betrayal of Lulu. Lulu, or Pearl in Arabic, uh, was probably a, a client uh, and a freedman of the Tulunid household. He may have been a eunuch because he is referred to as a khadim, but this is a somewhat controversial term. But nevertheless, this is a very important client of Ahmed ibn Tulun's and of the Tulunid household who rises up the ranks of the Tulunid uh, military and at a particular point is assigned a very important political and military assignment in Syria. Uh, Effectively, uh, I think he is appointed by Ahmed ibn Tulun to govern the territories that uh, Ahmed ibn Tulun uh, assumed authority over uh, in Syria. And so he gives him the number one spot as his uh, governor in Syria. At this point, Lulu betrays Ahmed ibn Tulun. He takes his military forces and he offers them up 
to El Muwaffaq, who is the the Abbasid regent, and more interestingly, is also the individual who is in charge of the Abbasid response to the Zanj revolt. And so all of these events are kind of coming together. So what Lulu does then is offers up the Talunid forces under his authority to El Muwaffaq, and El Muwaffaq immediately puts those Talunid forces to work against the Zanj, and according to At-Tabari, that they played a very key role in finally squashing the Zanj revolt. And it is a member of Lulu's army uh, that in fact brings the head of, uh, the severed head of the Zanj uh, leader back to Samarra and offers it to Al-Muwaffaq. Uh, which effectively brings an end then to the Zanj revolt. But back to the point is that with Musa, with Al-Abbas, and then with Lulu, we have indications both of the size, but also of the real complexity of this one medieval household and allows us then to think about the dynamics of this one particular uh, sociopolitical formation. Uh, within the medieval Islamic world. Your final chapter, City and Ceremony, looks at some of the the symbols of power and the actions that Ibn Tulun used to legitimize his rule. He built an entirely new capital city adjacent to Fustat, and of course the the mosque that still exists. Um, Anybody who's visited recognizes the labor and the expense that went into it. How how did he do this, and why was this so important, considering, uh, as you've argued, that he did not declare autonomy or independence from the Abbasid state? And I, I, again, have to stress that this is not usually the story that one gets in the Egyptian historiography, where I've seen him almost presented as sort of a 9th century counterpart to Mehmet Ali of the 19th century in a sort of moving in yeah. the direction of independence. So... So this is this is a really interesting take and, and something I found very fascinating. Yeah, no, it is indeed. And um, yes, I too have run into statements uh, regarding Ahmed ibn Tulun as an independent Egyptian ruler. And I have raised questions of, of that characterization. Um, and again, I would bring Ahmed ibn Tulun back into the context of Samarra. In other words, to think seriously about his background in some modern military circles, because after all, that is where he learned, where where he cut his political teeth Mm -hmm. and where he acquired presumably the background, the knowledge, the the sense of how one conducted oneself uh, in uh, elite politics. In other words, the way I like to describe is that Ahmed ibn Tulun was was playing by Samaran rules mm-hmm. uh, when he takes office in Egypt. And I think central to that effort was to strike a kind of balance. On the one hand, you want to draw as much of the symbolic, religious, and political capital of the Abbasid Caliphate to draw on it and to attach it to one's office as much as possible. But on the other hand, is to also exploit Egypt's uh, fiscal and human and military uh, uh, resources as much as possible. So the way I describe it in the book and in, in you know when I speak of Ahmed ibn Tulun in public talks is that he struck a kind of balance. And uh, I think so, did so effectively. That on the one hand is that he played up his relationship to the Abbasid Caliphate uh, in order to exploit its symbolic, uh, religious, and political qualities. But on the other hand, recognized that he had an opportunity to really pursue a, 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 an agenda of his own. And so I think his whole career is dictated by that, that, that very balancing act. Now, ultimately, I think that he never really achieved full success. In other words, he never really found the right formula. And uh, the Abbasid center, represented particularly by al-Muwaffaq, the Abbasid regent, was able to consistently resist Ahmed uh, ibn Tulun 
consistently raise questions of his legitimation, uh, consistently summon up opposition to the Tulunid project. And that will remain. In other words, after Ahmed ibn Tulun is dead, the opposition, the resentments, the animosity within the Abbasid center remained. And uh, Humarawe, over the course of his career, and then the Tulunids who succeed Humarawe for a short period of about 10 years uh, before the collapse of the dynasty in 905, that those same individuals faced the same opposition and animosity. So Ahmed ibn Tulun, I believe, uh, tried to strike this kind of balance, and it worked for him, although, again, I don't think that he was able to really achieve a sort of 100% success in that regard. So uh, we're just about at time, but uh, before I let you go, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're working on now uh, and what your next project might be? Sure. I'm wrapping up several shorter projects, and um, those uh, involve uh, about two or three essays on the Tulunids. Um, I think it's something that uh, many in the audience will be familiar with, is that, you know, once you're done with a writing project, in this case, uh, the biography of Ahmed ibn Tulun, is you start to think about, okay, what remains to be said? Or what ideas do I want to develop further? So I'm going to wrap up a couple of shorter essays, but I do have two longer-term projects that um, I've I've been engaged with and want to pursue further. Uh, One is a study of Al-Balawi's biography of Ibn Tulun. In other words, I want to turn to some of the historiographical questions that I bring up in the biography Connected with this is also a translation project that I'm involved with, with Mathieu Tillier, uh, who teaches in Paris, to translate the uh, well-known work of Al-Kindi, mm-hmm. uh, which is a study of the governors of Egypt. So th- that is one project that I'm involved in, which is to delve much further into is- uh, e- Egyptian historiography from the uh, ninth century. Now, the other project that I've been involved in for a long time, and this also comes out of uh, that first book, The Breaking of a Thousand Swords, is a study of slavery Mm -hmm. in in, uh, the early Abbasid period. So uh, working with colleagues, I'm, I'm pursuing that and, you know, I, my hope is that that will produce uh, a full-length or book-length study of, of unfreedom and enslavement in, in the first Abbasid period. So, you know, knock on wood, I'll, I'll you know, uh, see these things through to fruition. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to those. Matthew Gordon's new book, Ahmed ibn Tulun, is in the Makers of the Muslim World series published by One World Academic Press, and it's out in 2021. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. It's been really uh, great to talk to you. 